Good morning. It's good to see everybody. It's fun. Rainy day. A lot of you guys came in a little wet. That's kind of fun. It's good. My name is Jeff, if we haven't met, and we are uh, kind of in week three here of our series, The Cruciform Life. And if you were with us last week, uh, we were kind of exploring a little bit more about this relational tension that Paul, the author, the apostle, the author of this letter to the church in Corinth, is experiencing with this church. It's uh, this letter, 2 Corinthians, is one of the most personal letters that we get from Paul. And we're slowly kind of working our way through. We're going to get, learn a little bit more about the church and Paul and then ultimately, hopefully, Jesus each week as we continue through this. But because so much of the letter revolves around this tense relationship uh, between Paul and the church, we talked a little more about some of that last week, I've been doing more reading around just conflict and confrontation and reconciliation, and I was flipping through a book written by a pastor, and he had a chapter where he was reflecting on Matthew 18, verse 15. So you're going to get a little mini sermon in a sermon today. This isn't really the sermon, this is just the intro, but he was walking through Matthew 18, 15, and I just made a slide so I could go faster. The left side is kind of what Jesus says. If there's a conflict, you go to the person in private and discuss the problem for the purpose of reconciliation. And the chapter kind of walked through what all seven of these might look like if we're going to kind of follow, be obedient to Jesus. And in his own words, he said, you acknowledge the conflict, you, you own your responsibility, you approach, you don't avoid the person. You don't need a third party. You use sensitivity. There's direct communication, but always with the aim at reconciliation. And he gave an example of a conflict or a confrontation that involved road rage. That made me think of my own experiences here, so I thought I would share a story that I had. I'm, you might have your own. Uh, but but these, these, these moments of there's conflict or confrontation, I, I remember I was, uh, this was a few years ago, I was working at a different church, it was a multi-site church, and I was driving around and I had been easing my way. I have a manual, or I had a manual stick shift at the time, and I don't know, I, I didn't think there was anyone around me, and I was just downshifting and slowly approaching the red light. And all of a sudden, to my amazement, a car comes swooping around my side. I think he had been in the far lane and he wanted to turn right and I was going slow. I didn't, I think he was in my blind spot. I just didn't see him. But I pull up to the stoplight and he pulls up next to me and he is making all kinds of mannerisms at me through the window. Some lovely hand gestures that I won't repeat. And he is just red in the face with rage and honestly, at the time, I really, I, I didn't, I, I think I put together what had happened, but at the time, I had no idea why this man and was so mad at me. I mean, I'm, I'm a nice guy. Why is he so mad? I just stopped at the stoplight. So I probably shouldn't have done this, but I rolled down my window because I really want to know, what did I do? And he says, what's your problem, man? But he didn't say man. He said something else. And he gives me a beautiful hand gesture that he's already given me a few times, and then he he drives away. He didn't stick around to discuss the question with me. He didn't really want to know what my problem was. He just drove away, leaving me with this provocative question, what is my problem? <laughs> and this is back to the, the chapter I was reading. This is what the author says. The man did many things right, according to Matthew eighteen fifteen. right? Did he acknowledge our conflict? Yes, with clarity and passion. 
He took initiative without waiting. He was not passive. He did not complain about me to other motorists or start a circle of gossip on the streets so that other drivers were also talking about me. He spoke to no one but me. His communication was impressively direct. I knew exactly what he was thinking and feeling. He made it very clear. He probably got six out of those seven on the money, but he missed the one that mattered the most, right? Aiming at reconciliation. So, Paul, as we re-engage in 2 Corinthians, he is aiming at reconciliation. We're going to kind of pick up where we left off last week. We're going to be in chapter 2 and verse 12, and we're going we're, we're gonna to feel, and it's really not going to get resolved in the letter until we get to chapter 7, but, and, and even then it's not fully resolved because of outsiders that are kind of infiltrating the church in Corinth. But we're going to feel Paul really wants to know. If, if you were with us last week, Paul showed up unexpectedly in Corinth, and there was a painful visit, a painful encounter, and he left, and things weren't resolved. And what Paul chose to do was write a letter. We sometimes call it the painful or sorrowful letter. We don't have it. We just know he wrote it, and he sends it with Titus. And so what Paul is doing is he's is, he hoping the letter would bring about reconciliation. That was his aim. That was his goal. Paul really tries to follow the commandments of Jesus as he's ministering to the churches. We want to lead churches that know Jesus and live like Jesus and look like Jesus. And so he's just, he's just beside himself waiting for Titus to, to, in, to meet up with him so he can find out what's going on in Corinth. That's, he doesn't know and he wants to know. So we'll pick up in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. And he says this, when I came to the city of Troas, and notice this, I came to Troas to preach the good news of Christ. I mean, Paul went there to do ministry. He said, the Lord even opened a door of opportunity for me. I went there to do the Lord's work. God gave me a chance. And look at what he says in verse 13. But I had no peace of mind because my dear brother Titus hadn't yet arrived with a report from you. I didn't know if we had really struck that beautiful, harmonious place of forgiveness and reconciliation. And so think about this. If you know, if you don't know anything about Paul, he is compelled by the good news of Jesus Christ. But here we see, he says, I said goodbye and went on to Macedonia to find Titus. I I went to Troas to do work for the Lord. God opened a door and I couldn't do it. There was so much tension around what I was feeling for. My heart was so heavy about what was going on in Corinth. I I couldn't. I was just running on empty. And so I I had to go find Titus. So that's the context. Again, a reminder of some of what we talked about last week. We're going to work our way now. We're going to kind of work our way through chapter 3, verse 6. We're going to focus in on these first few verses. Paul now is going to... He's kind of going to go on this long stream of consciousness. We won't really kind of return to the historical flow of things in the letter until we get to chapter 7. So he's got this kind of long interlude, and he's going to begin by going from metaphor to metaphor to metaphor. So it kind of gets confusing, and we almost need a class to really like take our time through all of these. So we're going to hone in on the first few metaphors, but I'll try to explain just what he's doing in this section, and it'll flow beautifully into what we talk about next week. But I will make it clear, um, and I think this will be very clear as we go through this morning, I really believe that what Paul wants the church in Corinth to know, and I think 
I think as a heartbeat of Crossview that we need to remind each other of this again and again and again is we come to know Jesus usually primarily through encountering him on the cross and hearing the good news of a God who cares so much about us even though we're lost and, and, and rebellious and really deserving death, God has entered into our world and entered into death for us. And on the cross, he gave himself up for us to forgive us of our sins and give us a way into new life. And for for most people, you begin your journey of Christianity through encountering Jesus at the cross, on the cross. But what Paul wants the church in Corinth to know is that we never get beyond the cross. The cross is never just step one of many steps. It's, it's just always there. Every day is a reminder, an invitation for you and I in the posture of Jesus to take up our own cross and follow him. We never get beyond the cross. And part of what's going on, even if you've been with us for a while in our last series, we talked a lot about modern day Babylon and this culture of Babylon that says life is a game to be won. And we often say, no, 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 Jesus comes to his life is not a game to be won, it's a gift to be lived. But if very often, if we're not careful, if we're not paying attention, then this, this culture of Babylon will work its way into the church. And it happened in Corinth. And so Paul keeps coming back to this, what we, this cruciform standard of beauty, that the most beautiful posture there is, is this posture of servitude. Is, is Jesus Christ stretching out his arms in love on the cross, co-suffering love for you and for I. And Paul comes again and again, because in Corinth, they've started to think, oh, we've moved beyond the cross. And their version of modern-day Babylon isn't all that different than ours because this, I, that's what we've looked at. This theme of Babylon runs all the way through the Bible. Corinth is, is very much dealing with this triumphalistic attitude. <laughs> uh, I mean, if you read through 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, you, 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 you see that, that there's been this considerable disagreement with Paul about his apostleship. And he, he spends so much time defending why he does things the way he does. The Corinthian church doesn't like the form and the style of Paul. And we could get into this more. We won't talk as much about this language today, but Paul talks a lot about the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, as he's talking with the church in Corinth, and then ultimately what it means to be what we could say a spirit person. Because for the people in Corinth, a spirit person is someone who is triumphalistic, elitist, if you will. Uh, someone who, I, I mean, this still is kind of around today, but, but, but there's, a, there's this idea, and we'll read a little bit about this, but in Corinth, we have the Spirit, so it means everything is solved. It means I have no problems, probably means I end up with a lot of money, and I always have perfect health, right? Some of this, this false triumphalistic teaching that begins to ignore the cross, move beyond the cross, and Paul will have none of it. <laughs> And part, actually, I think part of the beauty of 2 Corinthians is how Paul is going to engage this triumphalistic thinking and defend himself, but still try to do so in a manner worthy of Jesus. That's what we're going to kind of work our way through. So in 
chapter 2, verse 14, we're, we're going to read kind of, even this verse, he's, he's going to give a, a first metaphor, but he's immediately going to go into a second metaphor. He says, thank God he has made us his captives. We're going to start with this one. And continues to lead us along in Christ's triumphal procession. So yes, Christ has a triumphal procession, but we are captives in this. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll take you a little farther by what he means by that. But I'll finish the verse. Now he uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere. We're, we're spreading the knowledge of God everywhere. And then he's going to launch into this next metaphor that we'll talk about in a minute, like a sweet perfume. <laughs> he just, this is sometimes why Paul gets tricky, because sometimes he's just stumbling over himself with metaphor to metaphor to metaphor. And you've got to step back. What is he doing? What is he saying? I want to start with this first metaphor of this triumphal procession. And what is Paul imagining, and, and where does Paul see himself as this victory parade led by the victory of Christ goes forth? Where does Paul see himself as a minister, as an apostle of Christ Jesus? I'm going to jump to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is a conversation that's been going on between Paul and the church for a while. And this is where Paul gives a little bit more clarity. Again, you'll, you'll see some of the things that I've been trying to say Verse 8, you think you already have everything you need. You think you are already rich. <laughs> and there's deep sarcasm. There's no, Paul has more sarcasm with the church in Corinth than any other church. It's really going to get strong at the end of 2 Corinthians. You have begun to reign in God's kingdom without us. He's, he's being sarcastic. I wish you really were reigning already, for then we would be reigning with you. Instead... Here we go. I sometimes think God has put us apostles on display like prisoners of war at the end of a victor's parade condemned to die. We have become a spectacle to the entire world, to people and angels alike. In the Roman world in the first century, when there was a Roman victory, there would be a great parade with all the spoils and the booty of war. And at the end of the parade would be those conquered people who are going to become slaves. And then at the very, very, very end of the parade would be the people who are condemned. They're not even going to live out their life as slaves. They're going to be killed. Maybe, maybe in the Colosseum, maybe in these gladiator fights, maybe by, by ferocious beasts, maybe, maybe another way. But they're going to be killed. And Paul says, that's where I am in this parade. As an apostle of Jesus Christ, I am, we, we are spectacles to the world. We are, we are the end of this parade condemned to die <laughs> when we never get beyond the cross. He says, our dedication to Christ makes us look like fools. I, I know we look like fools. I mean, this is part of what's going on, and this will get clearer and clearer and clearer as we journey through this series. But there are outsiders who have come in, and they're really challenging Paul's leadership and they look a lot more like Babylon than they do like the cross. And Paul's like, you can't fall for that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, we, we look like fools and you claim to be wise in Christ. Verse 10, we are, we are weak, but you are powerful. You're honored and we are ridiculed. And Paul then begins, even now we go hungry and thirsty. This is, what it, this is what he means as he's unpacking the metaphor. We don't have enough clothes to keep warm. We're often beaten and we have no home. We're homeless for the, this is all for the gospel, hardships for the gospel. 
We work wearily with our own hands to earn our living. Even beginning in 1 Corinthians, and it'll run through 2 Corinthians, one of the things that is driving the church in Corinth crazy is that Paul refuses to accept their support. (laughs) Now he will, he does from the church in Philippi, he does in other places, but Paul has deemed that for the church in Corinth to understand the gospel in all the ways they need to, he is not going to accept support from them. And if you were an itinerant philosopher or, or, or somebody kind of preaching a religion like Paul is doing, the, the ways that you made money is you were either supported and kind of lived with patronage or you begged or you, or lowliest of all, you worked with your own hands. In the first century in Rome, you only worked with your own hands if you had to. If you didn't have to work, you didn't work. <laughs> but Paul, as he entered into Corinth, he's like, you know what? This church, if they're going to understand what it means, cruciform, that we never get beyond the cross, then I'm, I'm not going to receive, I, I, actually in 1 Corinthians, I, I actually have every right to accept support from the church in Corinth, but I'm not going to. I'm going to work with my hands, and it drives the church in Corinth crazy. They, they hate that. It's embarrassing to them. And some of these other people who've come into Corinth said, look at Paul, he works, we don't work with our own hands. Paul does. You kind of use it to disparage him. Then he goes on to say this in verse 12, we bless those who curse us. We are patient with those who abuse us. Again, he means in the context of preaching the gospel. I always want to be clear. I said this last week. If you're in a situation where you're experiencing abuse, we're not asking you to just be patient and endure. We actually want to enter into your pain with you. Paul's talking about his work as an apostle. There are those who oppose him because he preaches Christ Jesus. And he blesses those who curse him. And he is patient with those who mistreat him. Verse 13, we appeal gently when evil things are said about us. Yet we are treated like the world's garbage, like everybody's trash right up to the present moment. So this is what Paul means as he begins this first metaphor. He's talking about what it means to follow Jesus. Paul is describing what it means to be marked by the cross. The paradigm of the Christian faith is the cross, self-sacrificial weakness for the sake of others. It's, It's the only paradigm of the Christian faith. We never get beyond the cross. To follow Jesus means to be stamped by God's own weakness in the cross. And Paul is saying we're a spectacle because we exemplify this more than any. But follow me as I follow Christ, Paul would say to the church. There's no triumphalism for those who follow Jesus. The Corinthians have had this misunderstanding for a long time and Paul just keeps, and he's, he's He's relatively patient with him as you read through, but he's, but he's direct. Paul says he's continually given over to death. This is, and, and they, they, the church in Corinth would like somebody who's a little bit more triumphal than Paul. There's others who have come along and said, look, we don't suffer like Paul does. And Paul says, it's my very suffering and my very weakness that lets you know that I am a follower of Jesus. They think they've moved beyond the cross. Paul says, you'll never get beyond the cross. And he says, we do this because we're after the knowledge of God. We're after the knowledge of Christ. We are spreading it everywhere. What we have is the aroma that reveals God's knowledge. 
And when Paul says this, he, he means that the knowledge of God is not something that you learn about God from books. It's not what he's talking about. It's not a course in theology in which you study God's characteristics and attributes. What he's talking about here is knowing God's character because you've been related to God intimately through Christ by the Spirit. Knowing God is a different thing for Paul than for the Corinthians. For the Corinthians, to know God means a triumphalistic attitude. It means insight and worldly wisdom and a bit of a head trip and arrogance. But for Paul, to know God is precisely to bear the character of Christ, to live out this cruciform life of the cross. This is where you manifest the life of God. Again, I think as a church, we always have to be careful that the triumphalistic, winner-takes-all attitude of Babylon does not seep into our church because you never get beyond the cross. And then he's going to move, like I said, straight into this next kind of metaphor of this fragrance, this perfume, this smoke. What, what's he talking about? Verse 15, our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. But this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and doom. But to those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. And who is adequate for such a task as this? What's he getting at here? Well, I think Paul, in his mind, is thinking back to, I mean, Paul is a Pharisee of Pharisees. I mean, it's quite possible Paul has the whole Old Testament memorized. Can you imagine that? Some debate about whether that would have been the case or not. It's possible. Paul knows his Old Testament. And I think he's reflecting back on these, these offerings, these sacrifices that would be offered up daily at the tabernacle or at the temple. If you ever read through the book of Leviticus, which is probably not the first book you read through every year as you read through your Bible, but Leviticus begins with a description of five main sacrifices. And the first sacrifice, we, you and I would call the burnt offering. In Hebrew, it's called the olah. Because olah means that which rises up, that which ascends. It's, it's unique. It's kind of foundational. There are other sacrifices that involve animals, but it's only part of the animal. The, the burnt offering, the olah, involves all of the animals, the whole body. It's the most costly. It's all cons- completely consumed by the fire. <laughs> and the imagery, the symbolism that that, that we would be invited into if we went to the temple to worship the one true God, is that you and I, we have failed God. We are, we are morally impure. We, we, have, we have sinned. We have things that we need to confess. And what God did during the Old Testament time was say, all right, what you're going to do is you're going to place your hands on an animal. And you are going to, it's going to be a, a, an unblemished animal. And this animal is then going to represent you, <laughs> on the altar. This, it's important that it's unblemished, but it, it, its physical purity is going to reflect what our moral purity should be. And the animal is then going to be completely consumed by the fire. But, but again, think about what's happening then. There is a transformation, in a sense, that is taking place visually. Where you have an animal there being completely burned up and turning into smoke that is now ascending up into the heavens. 
This animal is representing you and is making a way back to, we could say, Garden of Eden life, back to the source of all life, back to God. (laughs) The fire comes along and purifies the animal and transforms the animal so that it can now enter into the presence of God. That's the imagery. And I think Paul is reflecting on this imagery because what Jesus comes to baptize us, not just with water, but with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Because you and I are purified by the burning, cleansing fire of the Spirit of God. And then we are transformed so we can now draw near. I mean, Jesus is that blameless victim. He's the the Lamb of God, the sacrifice who ends all sacrifices. But the Spirit of God still comes into our life and purifies us and cleanses us and transforms us. Actually, I think that's a bit of what Paul is getting at in Romans 12, verses 1 to do these famous verses. Paul says, So, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person, renewing your mind, changing the way you think, and then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Paul is imagining these, this offering that is consumed by the fire and the smoke goes up, and you think about it, because he said there's two responses. I mean, it is an animal that is burned up. So, so if you don't understand the beauty of the cross, then this becomes a stench. Just a nasty smell to your nose. But for God, this kind of costly sacrifice is a fragrance. It's an aroma. It's a perfume. It is pleasing to him. It is, it is costly, yes, but it is beautiful. This is... In Paul's mind, as he kind of jumps from metaphor to metaphor. In other words, to those who don't see in the cross the power that leads to salvation, it becomes death. And this is where the heart of the gospel lies. It's foolish and weak to us. It's over against anything we would do in terms of offering God a better program. The cross is a continual scandal to our faith. That's why we always want to find ways to get beyond the cross. We find every imaginable way we can to domesticate the cross because it's such a scandal. It can be a stench. A scandal that God would sacrifice himself in love for those who are his enemies and those who would not only be done with him, but do him in. And yet this is the knowledge and the nature of God. The cross is not something Christ did to make God love us. The cross is the full evidence, the the full revelation, the full manifestation of what it means for God to love us. This is where God reveals the depth and, and the width and the power and the magnitude and the majesty of his love by sacrificing himself for you and I when we don't deserve it. And I remember a professor saying, it's always stuck with me, this is the ultimate apologetic for the Christian faith. Because no human being would ever dream this up. He would say it's too dumb and it's too weak. The cross as the way of salvation is the ultimate evidence that it's God's faith or no faith. This didn't come from us. It's, it's either from God or it's nonsense. 
because it's so radically over against everything we are, do, and think. The cross registers as God's ultimate contradiction to our existence. (laughs) And until we are ready to go through that contradiction, we cannot experience either the knowledge of God or his salvation. That's why the cross must be a central focus of everything we are and do as those who proclaim Christ. And this is what Paul is all about, and it's what he wants the Corinthians to understand. If you don't understand it, it looks like foolishness and death. But once you understand, it is the heart of God on display for you and I. And again, we talk about this often at Crossview. Once you allow the Spirit of God to take this truth, not just to your head, but drive it deep into your heart so that you live this way. So that you know that you know that you know that you have nothing to hide and nothing to fear and nothing to prove to God. That you don't have to live to try to please Him because He's already pleased with you and He already accepts you and He already loves you. It's a scandal, and it should be, but this is who God is, and it's good news. The cross is a scandal. We never get beyond the cross. I actually was reminded of this recently. I was in a conversation with someone I've known for a long time who for most of their life, actually, they viewed the cross as a stench, (laughs) and they've let me know about it, actually, on a few occasions. But recently, they've gone through a season that has brought about a deep awareness of their own weakness. And they were really dependent on other people. And I was in a really thoughtful conversation with this person, and they were sharing with me. And they're saying, you know, Jeff, I think for the first time in my life, I'm starting to learn what selfless love is. (laughs) I've got all these people who are helping me but they want something in return and I have nothing to give. (laughs) I need somebody to just love me and not need anything back. I'm drained. I'm on empty. (laughs) And I said, I get it. All I want is selfless love too, but I think I found it in Jesus. (laughs) There's no one like Jesus. There's no one who embodies this kind of unconditional, I'm for you even when you're against me kind of love like Jesus. We all, that's what we long for. And for many of us, it's a stench, it's a scandal, but then we begin to see, but this is who God is. And we look deep in our hearts, that's what I want. And then it becomes a fragrant aroma. It's life unto life unto life. It's good news. Well, let's keep our, moving our way through this. Like I said, we're going to spend a little less time on these last few verses. But, but, but Paul, Paul continues on in verse 17. He says, you see, we are not like the many hucksters, these other people now who are challenging his leadership in Corinth. He's trying to be careful in how he talks about all this stuff, but there's people among you, around you, who preach for personal profit. He says, we preach the word of God with sincerity and with Christ's authority, knowing that God is watching us. That's why in Corinth, I don't take any money from you because I don't want to be confused with these other guys. And and they're giving you something that's expensive and not of high quality. It looks better. It looks It looks better upon first glance than the cross looks, but it's cheap. These are hucksters. They're peddlers. You're going to take it home and realize it doesn't work. You're going to build your life on this, and your life is going to fall apart. It's it's cheap. It's not of quality. We're not like the hucksters. I'm not even charging you. This comes as gift, but you can build your life on it. (laughs) This is who God is. 
And then chapter 3, verse 1, and this is a question, actually, I think there are about six times in 2 Corinthians that he's going to come back to a question somewhat like this as he's defending his apostleship. Are we beginning to praise ourselves? Are we like others who need to bring you letters of recommendation or who ask you to write such letters on their behalf? You know, a letter of recommendation, we still do this today. You're traveling to another city, you're moving for work, you need somebody to verify your character, your work ethic, and so somebody writes you a letter of recommendation. Paul is not against letters of recommendation. Even read Romans in chapter 16, that the chapter begins as like a letter of recommendation for Phoebe because she's carrying the letter. He's not against these, but, but I think some of the people in Corinth who are challenging Paul have letters of recommendation and they're saying we have them and Paul doesn't. And Paul, again, in kind of his crafty, like, just intelligent way of trying to engage, just thoughtful. He says, are we like others who need to bring you these letters? Surely not. The only letter of recommendation we need is you. Your lives are a letter written in our hearts. We love you. And everyone can read it. You're like an epistle and recognize our good work among you. He says, clearly you are a letter from Christ showing the result of our ministry among you. This letter is written not with pen and ink, but with the spirit of the living God. It's carved not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. We're going to lean into that more next week as he continues on. But, but Paul is saying, you guys are being silly. The reason the church in Corinth exists is because God sent me to Corinth and I was the one who planted the church. <laughs> And you, you want evidence of my apostleship? Well, just look at yourself. You're the epistle read by all. You're the evidence of our ministry. We don't need outside recommendation. We have it right here. Manifested among us, the spirit of the living God at work. You don't belong to me. You belong to Christ. You are Christ's people. And I think Paul's having fun with this. Even through his weakness, they have become a, a thriving community of believers in Jesus. <laughs> Again, we often encounter Jesus at the cross, but we never move beyond the cross. And Christ is writing this letter, this letter of recommendation, not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God. Paul is trying to, over and over again, look, I... I I have a message to preach. It's a crucified Messiah. And the way I go about my ministry is an embodiment of this. And I, I can't do it any other way. And you yourselves are evidence of that. Why are you trying to move beyond this? And, and I, I, we, we really still struggle with this as a church 2,000 years later. Some of you will know the name Tim Keller. Some of you won't. He was a pastor in New York City and. He was an influential voice in my life. I always respected Tim Keller. He recently passed away from just cancer and medical complications. But I always respected Tim Keller. And I remember the first time I heard him speak publicly at a conference, he was a part of a movement, a group of people. And Tim Keller really struck out to me as all thoughtful, engaging speakers. But the other speakers there, and it's interesting now, it's about 15, 20 years later, <laughs> They're all celebrity pastors, if you were, well-known well around the American church. But most of them actually fell out of ministry, unfortunately. The other speakers were charismatic. They were dynamic. They were engaging. People were drawn to their teaching. But they were also brash and arrogant. 
And Keller always struck me as just thoughtful but humble and meek and almost, you might say, weak. And I liked that about him. It gave a certain credibility to his teaching. And I actually haven't read him as much in recent years, but I've been kind of tracking with his life. And when he passed away, there were a bunch of articles written about him. And one of the articles really, really struck me because there's been a lot of turbulence in our country. And I guess people just felt, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of empowerment to just criticize and judge, I guess. And some people started to criticize Tim Keller and how he went about doing ministry. I mean, he's not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But a lot of people just decided to criticize him. And the criticism was, you know, Tim Keller's mildness, his, his gentleness, his meekness, his humility is what the church needed 10 years ago. But starting about five years ago, things have gotten too turbulent in modern-day Babylon, and so we need someone strong. We need someone who can fight Babylon with Babylon's weapons. That's what people started to say about Tim Keller. And I remember just thinking, no, no, we, we never move beyond the cross. We don't lay down the tools of Babylon and pick up our cross only so that we can lay down the cross and re-pick up the tools of Babylon. We pick up our cross every day. And what looks like weakness to the world is actually the power and the strength of God. And that's really what Paul, Paul, I mean, Paul's like, fine, you can take all the shots at me you want to take, but it's not about you. I'm not trying to impress you. I'm trying to point you to Jesus. That's what Paul would say. I'm not trying to be the most dynamic or the wealthiest or the most influential preacher in Corinth. I'll work with my hands and build tents. I'm just trying to get you to understand the beauty of Jesus Christ. <laughs> so I guess that's what I want to say this morning. We never move beyond the cross. This is our standard of beauty. Jesus Christ, arms stretched out. And it's not just lip service. It's how we live. It's a posture we adopt. It's, it's a way of being in the world that looks like foolishness and weakness. I know. But if it really is the power of God unleashed through us, then it's, it's more powerful and stronger than you ever imagined. And this is how Paul kind of ends this little section, verse 4. Paul's not worried. He's not worried about the criticism. We're confident of all this, he says, because of our great trust in God through Christ. It's not, again, it's not that we think we're qualified. It's not what this, this has nothing to do with us. Our qualification comes from God. It is God who has enabled us to be ministers of his new covenant. Again, never forget, this is God's thing. It's a covenant, again, we'll get into this next week, not of written laws, but of the Spirit, because that old way ends in death. But the new covenant, the Spirit, it ends in life. It gives life. Yes, I know the cross looks and feels a lot like death. It looks and feels like it's just all loss, a total burning up of everything. But in Christ Jesus, that is the path we walk that then leads to resurrection life. It's a portal to another way of being. It is the way of flourishing in this world. <laughs> and it only comes through the cross. So let's pray. 
Let's pray for us around this, and then we're going we're gonna to reflect. We're going to think deeply about the love of God. And I don't think it's an accident that the one thing that he wants us to do again and again and again and again and again as Christians is to remember what he did on the cross. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we just continue to pray as we kind of journey through the series. Pray for your help in, in allowing us to see all the ways we are tempted to move beyond the cross. Uh, Lord, maybe it would even be healthy for us. Maybe, maybe part of our confession before communion this morning is to just be honest with you about how we, I mean, sometimes it just looks so weak. I mean, it just, there's, other, there's other opportunities and options before us here in modern-day Babylon that look a lot stronger, that look a lot safer, that look a lot more comfortable, and the cross just looks so weak. It looks so foolish. And maybe we just need to confess that this morning. And then to ask you, God, to meet us where we are. <laughs> and, and Spirit of God, to flood us with your life, to to remind us, to give us the faith that we need to trust that this is the only way that leads to life. That this is the true pathway of love. That this is what beauty looks like. And to give us the courage and the confidence to go forward and live out a cruciform life in a crazy, chaotic world. And to believe, even if we don't see it right now, that this is that the, that the way of the cross has more power and more strength and wisdom than we ever imagined because there is nothing more powerful than your love. And, and the cross is how we learn about your love and it's how the world is going to learn about your love. So shape us, lead us, guide us down this path as we take up our own cross and follow you. In your name we pray, amen.